Uh, the question really becomes, and, and the crux of the controversial issue is whether or not um, a course of post-operative antibiotics is necessary, and does that help? Hello to another of the Rhinoplasty podcasts. Today I'm very excited to have one of our young guns all the way from Denver, Colorado in the USA. This uh, young gun started med school in Wisconsin and uh, I've met him numerous times. I had the pleasure of having him in South Africa at our Saucer Congress in Durban in 2019 and then we had the most delightful safari afterwards. And I'm so inspired by him. I'm inspired by his absolute passion for breaking down difficult concepts and teaching them so well. He also is so relevant in what he speaks about. So today's program about antibiotic prophylaxis and rhinoplasty is brought to us by Vectra from Canfield Scientific. Vectra make, I think, some of the most unbelievable 3D cameras. And we can use these images to morph and show patients and plan our surgeries. So I already enjoy using Vectra in my practice. And um, without any further ado, Professor Andy Winkler, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Cam. It's so uh, nice to see you and talk to you again. Uh, I think the last time I really saw you was in is in uh, South Africa, and it was such a wonderful uh, opportunity to visit your country. And it was you were a wonderful host, and gosh, we had such a good time. It was, it was awesome. Yeah, my only regret is that you had to leave your sons behind. It was just you know, when your wife who came out. Yes, maybe next time. <laughs> so, so Andy, I know that, I mean, apparently you do rhinoplasty, but I think you spend more time skiing than you do rhinoplasty. But I guess if you live in Colorado, <laughs> yeah, you have I to. I wish. I wish I did. No, not not so. Unfortunately, it's hard to find time to escape up, up to the mountains from Denver. But, um, yeah, as, uh, as many of your listeners may know, Denver – is uh, ideally situated for for hidden resorts like Vail and Aspen and everything else. And gosh, we love it. We love skiing. You know, and Andy, you strike me as a passionate guy. I mean, you you're very passionate about teaching facial plastic surgery, not just rhinoplasty. Uh, you're passionate about your family. Uh, you love the outdoors. Are there other things that you get up to when you're not working? Yeah, um, you know, we like to uh, we like to climb mountains in Colorado. So. Uh, one of my passions is to to complete what are called the 14ers here in, in Colorado, and that is the mountains that have at their highest elevation over 14,000 feet. So there's 54 of them here in Colorado, I believe 54, and um, I think I'm up to about 20. Um, so during the summers when you can't ski, we, we climb these mountains and, um, and uh, we enjoy every minute of, of being outside. It's great. Wow, man. I've just finished the two different books on Mallory and Irvin climbing Everest, and that was fascinating. Oh, well, and we don't have mountains like that in South Africa. Well, you know, I was actually very surprised when I was in South Africa how many mountains you do have. I didn't realize it was quite uh, that mountainous. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's quite a, a different kind of uh, – you have every – every kind of environment in, in South Africa, don't you? Yeah, we do. Eh? But and when it snows, it's on the national news. It's quite something. Anyway, <laughs> okay. Andy, let's, let, let's climb into this a bit more. Tell me, how did you end up being where you are now in your career? Well, um, I guess, Cam, you know, the reality is, is that I always knew I wanted to go into academic medicine. Um, it was a passion of mine from the very beginning. And I always enjoyed doing research and thinking about problems very 
um, in depth um, and trying to figure out an answer to them and as well teaching. So it was always kind of um, a natural fit for me. So after my fellowship at Oregon Health Sciences University, um, it, it was really a matter of just seeing what academic job fit me the best. And um, I had the opportunity to come to the University of Colorado. And at the time, there was really no one else doing, um, doing facial plastic surgery in Colorado at the university. So it was an opportunity to kind of build it from the ground up. Um, and since then, we've hired um, two of our former residents who have uh, gone on to do facial plastics fellowships. Um, and, uh, you know, business is booming and, and we're really making some, some um, good um, headway in, in, in Denver and in the rest of the United States. So, you know, that's been very exciting for me. It, it really motivates me and um, I enjoy doing that. And I guess it's kind of how I ended up where I am. Oh, that's awesome, man. We, we don't yet have that in South Africa, but facial plastic surgery is going to one day hopefully be a speciality for us here. So I think it will. I'm, I want to climb into this topic that I think is so relevant about antibiotic prophylaxis. Before we go into the more clinical side to speak to colleagues about it, if a patient sees you, what do you tell them about antibiotics? Um, well, I try to be as truthful as I can. You know, not everybody needs antibiotics, uh, but some people do. You know, there are, I'm sure as you know, Cam, there's patients who come in and they're like, listen, I had this, you know, foot surgery and I got an infection and therefore I need antibiotics for the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, for everything. So there's, it, it runs the gamut in terms of like what, um, what kind of patients are looking for. Some of them really, really want antibiotics for everything. Some don't want anything to do with it. Um, so I just kind of try to tell them the truth of where I think they lie in that spectrum of, of needing antibiotics, mm. um, you know, before or after surgery. Uh, of course, it depends uh, a lot upon what you plan to do and, of course, their medical history and, um, and so forth. So it's, um, it's not a one-size-fits-all by any means, um, but it is a conversation I just I try to have openly and honestly. Okay, well, that's great. Okay, Andy, let's, let's not climb into this thing. So here I am. Um, I, I want a rhinoplasty. I'm going to come to you. And uh, I'm, a, I'm your colleague. Okay, so it's slightly different now. So now start <laughs> telling me about why we should or why we should not use antibiotics as prophylaxis or as treatment or as post-treatment in rhinoplasty and facial plastic surgery. All right. Well, so first of all, I think, um, you know, talking to you is more of a, you know, an expert in the field, um, but also to my patients. No one wants a surgical site infection. No one wants a, an infection after a rhinoplasty. These are costly endeavors, you know, um, and the cost, uh, there, there have been studies that looked at the cost of getting a surgical site infection um, and the cost of a first hospitalization is about 3000 you know, U.S. dollars. And then if you actually have to be readmitted after you've been discharged, that cost goes up to $5,000. Mm. So not just to mention, I mean, that's just the, the, the dollars and cents part of it. Um, but of course, an infection in the nose has a, carries a risk of, you know, ascending infection, as we talk about, that goes through the veins into the intracranial spaces. And it could be associated with, you know, even mortality. Not saying that that happens um, very often in modern medicine, but it certainly has the potential. Um, but then there's other things to consider um, of the costs of a, a surgical site infection in the nose. And that is, 
you know, patients are going to have longer downtime with an infection. They're going to have worse results. That can affect your practice as a surgeon. Um, certainly of word of mouth when patients, you know, speak to their friends. Um, and then, of course, just the requiring revision surgery, which nobody wants. Um, so all of these things um, come, come into play in, in our, our considerations of, of um, how do we prevent surgical site infections because they are uh, a big burden. Um, the question becomes like, well, how do you prevent them? So I think um, it's realistic to say that everyone will need some sort of antibiotic therapy during a nasal, rhino, uh, nasal procedure like a rhinoplasty. Uh, the question really becomes, and, and the crux of the controversial issue is whether or not um, a course of post-operative antibiotics is necessary, and does that help? And so that's where I think kind of the debate can be had. Although I don't think um, I don't think there has been a lot of good studies to kind of settle this, but I think there's um, I think there's a, a, a case to be made that one needs to be done. Hmm. Absolutely. Like, I mean, just pausing there for a second. Just over three years ago, I had a, a nevi cut out the side of my head. For, it was in the way of my That's microphone. Right. I remember this. And yeah. I didn't take any antibiotics, you know, and I actually ended up getting sick and getting a cavernous sinus thrombosis and ending up in the ICU. And the silly thing was that I think it comes down to the fact that if I had one course on the day of surgery, it probably wouldn't have happened. But secondly, there were so many of our specialists involved that we didn't see it because we as doctors often are so focused on our patients that we forget about ourselves. So for me, there's a lot of that kind of emotion that's come out that do I want to give post-surgery a course of antibiotics? And even though I've been through what I've been through, I agree with what you're going to be saying now because I'm looking forward to hearing about the studies that like Sam most done, etc., that you've mentioned that we're going to go into now. So, yeah, I'm going to yeah. let this, this young gun loose to talk. <laughs> well, yeah, let me, uh, so I think I should start by saying what are the, the clinical practice guidelines that have been put out in the last several years. So uh, at least the Ishii's group, and, and first of all, both both of these um, these surgeons I highly, highly respect and um, certainly don't want to take anything away from them. Um, Lisa Ishii put out a paper in 2017, um, and basically there was one statement, and I'll, I'll just kind of quote it here, regarding postoperative antibiotics. Uh, quote, when a surgeon uh, chooses to administer perioperative antibiotics for rhinoplasty, he or she should not routinely prescribe antibiotic therapy for duration greater than 24 hours after surgery, uh, as there is a predominance of harm over benefit, end quote. Um, now, to Lisa's credit, she also kind of lists several exceptions to that rule. Uh, revision surgery, complicated rhinoplasty, patients who have who are receiving these implants, and, and many, many others um, in terms of exceptions. Um, and then Sam Most at Stanford uh, also published uh, a meta-analysis of post-operative antibiotic use in 2019 um, and, quote, pooled evidence from the five randomized control trials does not support the use of preventative antibiotic therapy in rhinoplasty, end quote. So, you know, it seems pretty clear, right? You know, post-operative antibiotics do more harm than good. Um, uh, but I think if you kind of look at the, if you dive into the, the data and dive into these papers and dive, dive into the arguments a little bit more, um, that it's not quite so clear. Um, although probably many of the, um, the tenets or the, the conclusions that they draw are, are valid. Um, there are some, um, I think, important points to make.
Sure. So I, I guess if it's okay, Cam, um, I, I just think like if we can go through maybe basically individually kind of go through some of these, um, these points, we can kind of like tease them out and kind of dive in a little bit deeper. No, please do. Because I think sometimes in this little space, guys say, do not do as I do, do as what the papers say. Mm-hmm. All right. That's probably true too. Like if you were to poll people and see what they actually do. Yeah. yeah. And I would say, you know, full disclosure here, for the last probably six months, I have not been using post-operative antibiotics. Because that, and, and, you know, actually, I'm going to go on up a little tangent here. When I first started thinking about this was at your course okay. in South Africa. Um, I think the Springboks had just won the, uh, the, the World Cup, or however you say it. Yeah, yeah, they, and... they destroyed England. <laughs> <laughs> they destroyed England, and uh, we were all we were having a chat, just like an informal um, discussion, and uh, the this issue came up. Like someone in the audience had asked, "What do you, what does the panel do for postoperative antibiotics?" And someone in the audience, a South African, had mentioned um, something about antibiotic resistance in um, in food production in you know the food industry. And that's really kind of what got me thinking about this. And since then, I've been putting together a paper about about this topic. And so, a lot of what we're discussing here is kind of the arguments that I've been I've been researching, kind of looking into. So, anyway, one of the uh, one of the tenets here, one of the ideas is that um, so don't use antibiotics because the incidence of rhinoplasty post-operative infection is low. It is. We all kind of know that. Um, some some studies quote about you know half of a percent, 0.5 percent. Those are very old studies. And antibiotics don't help anyway. Well, uh, if you look at, at Sam's paper, Sam Moe's paper, um, this was a, a heterogeneous group of five randomized controlled trials that were compiled to look at this problem. And um, if you look at those trials, the, the antibiotics that were used or looked at in those trials were augmentin, erythromycin, ampicillin, penicillin, and propicillin, which I had actually never even heard of in, in, until I read that paper. So the reality is, is none of these are first-line antimicrobial ther therapy in 2021. Like, I don't use any of those. What I use is Keflex, um, Bactrim on occasion, and Clindamycin if I were going to use anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that's problem number one. You're using a randomized controlled trial that doesn't use modern antibiotic therapy, prophylactic therapy. So, you know, what conclusions can you draw from it? Of course, this is the, the problem with all um um, all of these kind of compilation um, uh, uh, studies where you're looking at mixed uh, studies and trying to trying to form a, a consensus. Um, but however, let's just you know kind of throw that in the in the trash bin for now. Um, but if you it, what they saw is that if you're using any kind of post-operative antibiotic regimen versus no treatment or placebo, but not perioperative. So perioperative would be, you know, the IV antibiotics that you get during the surgery uh, for your listeners. Um, so this is a post-operative antibiotic regimen. So that's after surgery for five, seven, 10 days versus nothing. The relative risk reduction of a nasal surgical site infection was 0.43, which means that patients taking antibiotics were 57% less likely to develop uh, a nasal surgical site infection than those who took nothing. That's significant. 
that's not nothing. So basically what that tells you is that these antibiotics are helpful in preventing surgical site infections. Now the question then that you would lead to is, well, what kind of antibiotics do you need? Can you just do a perioperative antibiotic or do you need this full course that goes out over a week? Um, so they looked at that and so they compared um, pre or perioperative antibiotics uh, to a postoperative course. And what they found was that postoperative antibiotics added less protection with the pool, pooled relative risk of 0.92. But that still means that the postoperative antibiotic course was 8% less likely to get an infection than perioperative. So, I mean, your, your numbers are going down, you know, and of course, this is kind of all patients, all comers, all types of rhinoplasty, all, and all these other caveats like the you know, the, the, the antibiotics that they're using are not the ones that we would use. So you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt, but still, even with those considerations, post-operative antibiotic group did have less infections. So, you know, it's something to consider, something to think about. Um, the, sorry, the, the other uh, argument that's often made is that, you know, um, antibiotic use is going to lead to antibiotic resistance. So, you know, that's obviously true. How big of a problem is this in, in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, we linger probably a good five or 10 years behind where you guys are, but it is definitely, and especially I think with all the antibiotics that are in food. And in South Africa, exactly. we also have a lot of that, eh? Yeah, so that's kind of where I was going. Thank you. <laughs> the, uh, so the question is, where is the data on this? And uh, I think, you know, you and I and, and most people would agree that physicians must be thoughtful stewards of antibiotic use and, um, you know, certainly not give it with give antibiotics without any consideration. Uh, but we should also be aware that most of the antibiotic resistance pressure in the world comes from the animal, I'm sorry, industrial food animal production, which is big agriculture, you know. Um, and so for the next, uh, sort of the data in this next part here, I'm really drawing heavily on a review I read from Ellen Silbergeld, Silbergeld, um, and it's actually fascinating for even non, you know, for medical people and non-medical people alike. Um, she just goes through and kind of talks about all antibiotic use and the history of it in, in the uh, big agriculture. And so she says, quote, uh, the largest use of antimicrobials worldwide occurs in the production for, of animals for human consumption of meat, milk, and eggs, period. <laughs> so and if it's true, I mean, I mean, anecdotally, I think you and I can, can think about this, and it makes perfect sense. Like, yes, Cam, you had an, a horrible infection. You had some antibiotics for that. And I think I might have taken an antibiotic within the last two years or something. But these animals are being fed antibiotics every day. You yeah. know, the the amount, the tonnage of antibiotics that are used in that industry is is mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, so, what that can also cause, and, and, and that's a whole other topic on for conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so incidentally, kind of, it's just some interesting points that I pulled off from this article is that the use of antibiotics in farming began only about 50 to 60 years ago, but it is a major driver for selection and dissemination of resistance in bacteria. Um, there have been many studies linking the development of antibiotic-resistant genes in, in animals and in their bacteria due to the feed or in medicine and subsequent transmission to humans. 
No, so but I mean, if it's okay, like the feedlot, the the grain-fed beef. You want to catch a corn? Uh, it's it's horrific. I mean, the, the the animals that are fed and are only in the sick bay, the number thousands, and it's continual. And yet we we love it. Yeah. We put it inside our bodies. I don't know what that does to our bodies in terms of cancer, etc. My brother's obviously <laughs> farmer Angus. He's really into this stuff. But it's yeah. you know I'm, I'm we 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 basically try and eat as organic as you can, and that's venison. You know, that, yeah. that's an you animal that's been. Living in the bush and can't come close to an yeah. antibiotic. Yeah, exactly. Now things are turning around worldwide, but it, it is still certainly something that um, I think is predominant a predominant cause of resistance. So there are a couple studies that I hope is okay if I can kind of just kind of quote them. Yes, please carry um, on. So there was this there's the temporal trend studies like, uh, for example, uh, a study in from 2000. Uh, examined the introduction of vancomycin in pig production in Netherlands, and then they looked at human fecal samples. And after the introduction of vancomycin, it was closely correlated to an increase in prevalence and resistance in enterococcus in human samples. So it's just like, here's one and here's the other. Wow. Um, in Spain, um, and I think I, I, I showed you to the, showed you the uh, graph of this, perhaps we can put it up in the um, on the on the web or the the podcast, um, but four quinolones were introduced in poultry production in 1993, and the rates of human isolate resistance quickly rose to over 80 percent six years after it was first introduced. Uh, before that, it was you know right around five percent or less. Jeez. So highly correlated. Um, and then there's one another study um, going the other direction. Um, so in Europe. Uh, the EU put a ban on the use of feed additive antimicrobials. And then there was a study in Denmark at that time that showed rapid and parallel decrease in the prevalence of antibiotic-resistant enterococcus in pigs. And then furthermore, uh, the prevalence of uh, resistant enterococci isolates in humans declined in, in the whole EU over that same time period. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's these are three studies but there are many many others that kind of kind of make this point so and if, so i think if you've got yeah, somebody who loves having kfc chicken and <laughs> feedlot pigs they're in trouble if they can have a rhinoplasty and get an infection exactly you know so that's the issue is that it increases your community acquired antibiotic resistance just by going to your kfc which is everywhere so um i think pulling back the the large argument here cam is that um, you know, yes, physicians must be, you know, um, studious of this issue and very, um, you know, very um, uh, cautious when, when recommending antibiotics. But the reality is, uh, is that much more um, damage is caused by the consumption of antibiotics in the food industry than it is by us prescribing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, kind of both those points there. Um, so the last one I have here is the question is that, well, okay, so are there any other, are there obvious indications where you absolutely should use post-operative mm. antibiotics? And um, there is, um, I think, of course, I have to kind of plug my own paper. So in 2013, I put out a paper uh, looking at the um, complications associated with, with implants in the nose in rhinoplasty. And in that study, 
uh, cases where implants were used, the infection rate was about 12.6%. So that's very high, Hmm. you know, so I would argue that's a pretty high, um, high risk population. And that is a case where I think you could um, logically advocate for use of post-operative antibiotics. Um, There have been other studies, (coughs) excuse me, there was a study in 2017 looking at 5,000 rhinoplasties and they said that the only thing that they could pull out was age over 40 which hmm. i don't know i feel like that's pretty young hmm. yeah <laughs> so, young guns are 40. Um, yeah that's right um so but that was considered a high-risk population in that paper um and then i don't know anecdotally in cam I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this in my practice i've actually seen this is totally anecdotal but um, higher incidence of sort of columellar infections with tongue and groove, cardiocephal extension grafts. Um, so I don't know if that's real or if that's just me kind of, you know, seeing something that's not really there. But um, that's, you know, I, I just kind of add that. Uh, that's very interesting. I'm going to go back because I, I would I need to actually relook at exactly the, the what is there a correlation between the patients. I don't think it's an old age one. I've actually found... If I think about it, the, the, I probably have, you say things come in threes. So sometimes it happens that there's like three cases once a year and then maybe mm-hmm. a year later, another three. And generally young patients, healthy patients, and actually funny enough, um, most have been outdoors, farmer kind of guys. So I wonder if it's oh. guys who actually are on farms and are more prone to perhaps antibiotic resistance because I don't give my patients antibiotics unless it's indicated. Mm-hmm for course after surgery but i'll definitely go and have a look mm-hmm. yeah it'd be interesting uh there's probably more more story to be told there too i think revision surgery that's probably a kind of an obvious one um, you have to kind of use your gestalt sometimes and uh, try to determine who you think is you know at risk um so i don't know i think um you know it's sort of what i come away with after you know kind of diving in a little bit deeper into some of this is that i feel that number one everyone should receive perioperative antibiotics at i least. agree 100 percent. perioperative meaning iv antibiotics at the time of surgery mm. everyone okay so let's just pause there what what um, yeah. type of antibiotics or what dosage do you normally prescribe i give two grams of ansef cefazolin mm-hmm. um if they're penicillin allergic i will give 500 900, sorry, 900 of clindamycin. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty much it. Yeah, those two. What, what do you give? We normally give them augmentin Augmented. as an IV okay. dose when, when we're putting them to sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, think, as well. Depends. I think that's very reasonable. Yeah. Um, I would also argue that uh, post-operative antibiotics do confer a risk reduction. So they are not superfluous. These are, mm-hmm. this is a real risk and antibiotics help you know obviously we had that discussion about well what kind of antibiotics we we've argued that at least perioperative antibiotics um kind of we'll get into the rest of it here in just a second but they need antibiotics and they do help agree agree so far absolutely okay (laughs) all right um i would i would also conclude that uh uncomplicated primary rhinoplasty does not need post-operative antibiotic prophylaxis unless there are other factors that work agree absolutely agree disagree no, agree. Okay. 
there was actually a really good study. Um, I'm going to mention it here from Rajan. Um, in 2005, it was a randomized control study looking at like several hundred um, endonasal rhinoplasties. And these were all primaries, all kind of basic rhinoplasties and did not um, <coughs> confer any kind of benefit. Okay, last one or a couple of last ones here. Uh, when trying to decide whether to use a course of post-operative antibiotics, pros and cons should be considered for kind of each case individually. Um, agree or disagree? Absolutely agree. Yep, and I think these are guidelines, of course, and they have to be applied individually to each case. Um, it is right to be cautious about the development of antibiotic resistance and perform good antibiotic stewardship. However, we should realistically consider the impact of a five to seven day course of antibiotics in some of our patients versus that of, you know, the big agricultural industries. Yes, very good point. Agree? Yeah, I just, I, what I kind of want to say there is that, you know, there's, there's a high cost of surgical site infections to both patient and doctor if they occur. Um, and certainly we don't want to cause antibiotic resistance. We don't want to cause things like uh, Clostridium difficile infections. Um, but the real risk of that is, I think, lower than is kind of commonly touted in our, in our specialty. So I wouldn't want you, I wouldn't want any of our listeners or anyone to feel bad about using antibiotics if you feel like your patients will benefit. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. It's absolutely right. Point. Is that fair? There. Okay. So yeah, that's all I got. No, no. So a couple of things from my side. So one of the things I would consider in a primary to give a course of antibiotics after surgery is if I've also done some sinus surgery and I've put doyle splints in the nose, even though I'm encouraging yeah, patients to, to flush mm -hmm. it, but they're packed because I'm concerned that yeah. I might be um, affecting the sinus drainage pathway. So that's one point. Mm -hmm. But then the so what I then do is if there are four things that in my practice, so the patient's going to get a, a dose of antibiotics when they go to sleep. But beforehand, I want to give them, they get a little bottle of chlorhexidine to wash their hair and their face the night before surgery and the morning of surgery. The second thing that I do for them is I give them a little tube of antibiotic ointment to put on their nose after the operation. And then the last thing is that when the site is sterilized before surgery, we use betadine, betadine to do that. And for me, if I yeah. can, so I've got the patient prepared by cleaning their face beforehand, cleaning it in surgery, giving them a tube of uh, antibiotic ointment for afterwards and getting them to flush their nose out with saline. Hopefully those things can decrease the risk of surgical site infection. What are your thoughts yeah, about that? Do I, you agree or disagree? I totally, I totally agree with those are, I think, um, sort of objectively good measures to, to do. There's certainly little downside to doing them. Um, I can't tell you if there's been uh, evidence to support that, um, but I mean, I'd use betadine for every one of my patients and um, and I think that it is a good thing to do. I, I don't see a downside to doing it. It can only help. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah, I, I would uh, I would love to, to do a study to kind of determine if that has any effect, but um, certainly doesn't hurt and it's a very inexpensive thing to do. No, that's awesome. Okay, Andy, for the, the last part, I want to ask you now, okay, mm -hmm. so what happens when you do get a surgical site infection? Yeah, uh, I use Bactrim right away. 
Okay. Um, so Bactrim in the United States, at least, is um, is a good um, antimicrobial to cover um, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. And it seems to be very well tolerated. Um, it's relatively inexpensive. Um, so that's kind of my first line of defense. Um, obviously, I guess I'll step back one, one second. If you do um, have fluctuants, if there's something that you feel should be drained, that's mm. obviously the most important thing to do mm. is drain it. So I have done that. I've done uh, drainages in the clinic, and then I'll take um, an 18-gauge um, um, angio calf, you know, the soft catheters, mm-hmm. uh, stick it right in my, my um, incision that I made in the septum and just kind of irrigate it out. Um, patients do not love that. I'll let you know. Yeah. Um, but I think it, it is helpful um, at least to kind of get the, the infection under control. And then, as I mentioned, back to them for about a week. Yeah. <clears throat> Well, that's awesome. What What would you do? Absolutely, and and I'll get a bit nervous at the same time. I, I just I, I, <laughs> I don't like it. But so my tolerance no. for taking someone to theatre and cleaning up properly is very low. Um, yeah. 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 So you got to. You know, that's what that's what's nice, kind of in a in in the setting that you're building is is um, having a, a theater in in house. Mm. Um, I think it would be certainly not a bad thing to do. Um, it just, it, there's a little more inertia for me to do that, um, to try to, you know, find time in the OR and mm. blah, 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 and maybe 10 PM by the time I'm getting in there. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a bit of an issue. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks, man. Um, I so yeah. appreciate your time and, uh, the wise words and we give a shout out again to Vectra. They, I don't know if you use them. Um, they're helpful. Actually, I. I have used them. I don't have them at, um, at my um, at my university, but I would love to. <laughs> I think they make. I think they do make a fantastic product. Yeah. So so please, um, so you can actually send an email to me with the name the Rhinoplasty Podcast and get a nice discount on Vectra. So Ooh, yeah, all right. see Thank see you. what we can do for the listeners out there. All right. Awesome. Great. Well, Andy, thanks again for your time and uh, have a lovely rest of your day. You too, Cam. Have a good day.